Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm your host, A.L. Levy, and today we are joined by a guitarist who needs no introduction in the power metal scene. Bill Hudson is the lead guitarist of his own band, North Lane, but also has a reputation as a sought-after sideman, working with artists such as I Am Morbid, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Doro Pesh, and many, many more. We're excited to have Bill back on the podcast today. Let's do this. Bill Hudson, welcome back to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me again, man. Good to see you again. Good to talk to you again. Of course. Always a pleasure. And you've been doing a lot of stuff, man. Well, that's not new that you're doing a lot of stuff, but you just don't stop. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of the only way you can make a living in this industry these days. You know, you, I, you have to get two or three full-time gigs and and try to scramble, scramble that together. I've been pretty active since October of like the, of 21, you know, like people are still locked at home and I was already, and I was touring with Doro, opening for Michael Schenker. It's been, it's been a great year and then I have another great year ahead of me now. Can't complain at all. Was there ever, or is there ever conflicts with scheduling with that many projects that are active, like on the road? Yeah, it happens way less often than you would think. I remember a really bad one was in 2017, the summer of 2017. I had already had a scheduled tour with I Am Orbit. It was actually our first tour. Uh, I Am Orbit is the project I have with David Vincent and Pete Sandoval, and we mm -hmm. play Morbid Angel music. Actually, at the time, we had Tim Young on drums. But anyway, we had this European tour booked. And after the tour was booked, I got a, a gig playing guitar for Udo Dirk Schneider, who's the classic singer for Accept. Mm -hmm. And he was doing a lot of big festivals at the time, at the same time that I had the I Am Orbit tour. So I was flying, you know, from Hungary to Italy and then back to Bulgaria the next day because there were, uh, I had to miss a couple of like I Am Morbid shows to do those festivals that year. And that was really bad. And they were cool with it? David wasn't cool with it. He understood the situation. Yeah. But we had a, we had a really big heart to heart after. And I, I told him, you know, like this won't happen again because, because that's one of my favorite gigs. You know, like I've been, I've been with him for a long time. This is about to happen again with my own band because I'm about to leave for Europe for our first tour with my of my own band, Northdale, which is my power metal band I started a few years ago. There's a big I Am Morbid headliner festival right in the middle of it. But then, I'm, you know, I'm going to go do that and get a feeling for myself in my own band. But it's only one show and it's it will be okay. I'm the boss in that one. <laughs> That's the thing is I feel like with these types of situations, as long as there's good communication and the parties involved want to make things work, there's a way to make it work. So I've got a similar situation with Krim. He plays in septic flesh and there's absolutely no way that like he's not going to prioritize septic flesh. We're not going to be touring for a minute, but I know that like once our tours start, we're going to have to take the septic flesh schedule into account and it's going to be what it's going to be. So I predict that we'll have to have fill-ins from time to time and that's fine. Just as long as everybody is on the same page about why things are the way they are, what it means, and there's no like immature shit or anything or any like under the table shit, it's fine. You got to be flexible in this industry. 
to survive. It's true. It's true. I mean, everybody's aware that no one is getting rich off of one gig, <laughs> even off of three. <laughs> and I was lucky. Like my schedule for next year, basically, like uh, you know, I keep getting more and more shows, and they do fall into place. And then I go, oh, this works because I I'm gonna play this one show in Germany, and I have another one with a different artist here in Germany the next day. It kind of works out. It's been working out in my favor. But but yeah, it, communication is keys. Everybody is like you said. Everybody, everybody wanting to make it happen and understanding it. it. It's it's okay. It works. So is it just something that you preempt? Like when you start playing with somebody, you say, "Look, I'm a professional guitar player. I have to do this." I mean, like, what would the option be? Like to be on a big retainer in order to get you to not do that? You see, that's my daily struggle, man. Mental struggle, that is. Because when I started playing guitar, I wanted to be like a like a big guitar hero and being a band and being one band associated with that with that one band that's life changing for people. But the truth is, it never worked out like that for me. It never did. I talked on a past podcast. I talked about my first band, Salador, which was an, a ridiculous opportunity handed to us that we fucked up. And since then. Everything that's happened in my career was always a situation like that. We need someone that's a good guitar player that's going to come in and play the part and look good and do what has to be done. But I'm always stepping on someone else's shoes, you know what I mean? Like uh, people see me because they cannot see Trey. People see me mm -hmm. because they cannot see Chris Oliva. My career happened that way. You know, because I hear a lot of musicians talk about how hard it is to make money in the industry. And yeah, it is hard, but I managed to. You know, like I'm not complaining about my financial situation right now. And a lot of people are. But that's because I, I work so much, you know, because I travel nine months out of the year. It's the way I figure to make it work. You know, I yep. would rather I would rather be touring with Northdale full time, but uh, you know, it's not like that. Just didn't happen like that, and I'm cool with that. You know, I can have my things be side projects and be the guy that makes the the real artists look good in other situations. You know, be David Vincent or Doro Pash or Udo Dirk Schneider, whoever it is. You know, the thing is that the situation where someone has their own band that just gets big enough to sustain everything. I mean, that's super rare. It's very rare. Like right now, pretty much the only band of the newer generation that's like playing arenas right now is probably falling in reverse. Yeah. You know, like, well, Five Finger Death Punch, I guess, play arenas too. But I mean, it's, I mean, how many bands are at that level? You know, everybody else is like at that medium level under, you know. So, I, I mean, it's... It is what it is, man. You know, I, I, uh, I enjoy what I do very much because, because that's the flip side too. You know, like, like I said, I'm stepping on someone else's shoes, but because of that, I also get to play huge shows and festivals and things. And awesome music. Yeah. Things that I, I couldn't do like, uh, like with my own band right now. You know, like this year I'm headlining Vaken with Doro. I am uh, playing Monsters of Rock with Kiss in Brazil, in my hometown with Doro as well. I have a shit ton of festivals with I Am Orbit. You know, like it would be a lot of fucking work to try to make my own men do all this. You know, The thing is that we can't decide how things are going to work out. Nope. Or anywhere really in life. Yeah, really. I kind of had it in my head. I want to be a professional musician, however, whatever that takes, however, however that happens. 
And I mean, I, I became good at this. Like, I'll never not get a gig, you know, like, I'll never like, oh, you know, come, come, come and play with us. Like, I'll never lose a gig to someone else, you know, like, I became really good at this one thing. And I'll do the other stuff on the side and see what that does, like North there. Yeah, I think that the reason for why, because I know a few people who say they want to do that sort of thing, but I really only know two or three people who actually have been able to pull it off where they're like professional sidemen for like big acts for, and have done it just year after year after year. I know two or three guitarists who have pulled it off. It's because I think that at the end of the day, lots of people are not willing to do what's necessary to make those gigs work. And they're not willing to accept that as their main thing. It's interesting. When I started URM, like I never had a problem with it. I was always totally cool with it. So when I quit producing to start URM, like that was a decision. And the decision was made because, well, first of all, I didn't really enjoy producing anymore much. I realized that there's no way I can possibly give URM what it needs to become successful and also be having to take breaks to go produce bands for like five weeks straight. It's like, I have to make a decision and I was, I was never conflicted about it. As I was totally cool with that choice. But other people that I know didn't believe me. They didn't believe me that I was able to put aside what they thought should be num my number one. And the same with guitar. So, you know, for a long time, I didn't play guitar. Uh, now I'm all in with guitar again. But uh, for the time period where I wasn't playing guitar... I was not conflicted about it. I didn't want to do it because I was committed to the thing that I was doing. And I accepted that as how things are working out in music. But it was interesting to me that other people couldn't understand that because they, I think what they're telling me is that they themselves can't see anything but one way for succeeding. That's how they define themselves. If they don't succeed in this one particular way, they're not succeeding. And that's not how I define myself. Clearly, that's not how you define yourself either. I think it's interesting. Lots of people's perception or their opinions are, if it doesn't work this one exact way that I wanted when I was 13 years old, then it didn't work at all. <laughs> kind of bullshit. Yeah, that's it. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, man, uh, been doing this for as long as I have consistently, I, I always meet musicians in the lineup of the bands that I work with that can't handle it you know like I, a lot of people that i'm like oh this guy isn't gonna go far the second you're trying to get more attention than the artist the second you're trying to argue with the artist you know oh we should do this instead of this that means that you're not made you're not made for this no you know like it's all it's always like the as musicians we have a huge ego you know, everybody mm -hmm. has an ego. Everybody wants to show how good they are, uh, how how great they ide their ideas are. If we're a guitar player, we want to show how fast we can play or a drummer. I, I mean, any time that you want to show any of that, you're not you're not made to do this. Not 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 at this. N not like this. Not as a professional sideman, so to speak. What I think is interesting about ego is, yeah, every musician who is out there has an ego. Now the thing is how you choose to have your ego fulfilled yes. is what makes all the difference in the world. Um, because if the only way that someone is happy having their ego fulfilled is through me, 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 then that's going to be rough. Like I've always said that, like, for instance, when you have a songwriting situation and 
you have to like give up certain parts for the better of the song and people's egos get hurt about that. It's like, well, forget your ego in that moment. Your ego will be fulfilled in the big picture of the song is better and people like the song more. That's You're going to get way more ego gratification out of that. So you sacrifice a little ego now for the bigger uh, for the bigger ego gratification later. Yeah. Not to mention, nothing fuels your ego more than standing on a stage in front of 50,000 people that don't speak your language. Even if you're yeah. not playing your song, it's pretty amazing to do it, you know? I'm sure. So it's just, it's a different kind of thing, you know? Yeah. You've noticed in lineups where you can tell that somebody is in it for the wrong reasons or it doesn't have the psychological makeup for being a proper sideman or whatever, side woman, side person. Yeah, because you know, I'm sure in the pop world, you know, where, you know, if you go play with with Katy Perry or Lady Gaga or Post Malone, I'm sure that things are different. That people there expect to end up inside men to to an extent. Yeah. Whereas metal people never, never do. Most of them can't even tell the difference between being in the band and being hired by the band. That's number one difference. You know, it's like just because it's presented as a band, just because you go out there and we are this band, that doesn't mean that that what you say goes just as much as the artist. And that's such a simple concept. It's like if you have a job, you don't, you don't you don't have the same power decision as your boss, even if you're both in the same company, you know. I'll see guys like that. What I see the most is with guitar players, you know, like some artists are okay with you taking liberties and doing your own solo, and some are not. But that's their decision to allow it. Yeah. Some will say this dumbass solo here that is very easy and simple is how you're going to play. That's how I'm paying you to play. That's how you're going to play. And as simple of a concept as that is, a lot of people don't, don't tend to like it oh i'm the guitar player right you're the guitar player hiring to play these parts if you don't play these parts then they're gonna go and hire the next guy who's not as good as you but will play these goddamn parts the way they want to hear it you know it's it's simple i feel like that makes your life easier (laughs) yeah exactly yeah dude there's gigs currently i mean you know like doro gig that's a very easy gig because the way the way like she wants to hear the songs, the way everything is done is very old school, very like 80s metal, you know? So a lot of things like, oh man, I need to dial in my noise gate right or I need to practice this solo part because it's really hard. None of that is, is a necessity on a gig like that because they want to hear it the old school way, you know, like the, the real amp and the loud amp and the improvisations. It's easier on the musician. That particular gig obviously works works for everybody. Everybody likes working like that. But I've been in other gigs where it's like, oh man, you know, that that solo is kind of dumb. I, I I can do it better. Okay, well, the artist doesn't think it's dumb. That's all that matters. What you think doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, especially if you're doing a gig where you're not a fan. I think also if you're doing a gig where you're a fan, why would you want to change it? Exactly. One of my favorite gigs, I already mentioned this, is a is a I am orbit. I love working with David and Pete and I love being around them. They're my friends, you know, we're like, that really does feel like a real band, even though it's obviously David Vincent's project, you know, but that does really feel like a real band. And when I started playing that kind of music, I didn't, I wasn't a fan. I didn't grow up on death metal. And uh, I had done Vital Remains one tour before 
uh, because I was really good friends with Brian, the singer, but I didn't know anything about death battle. And over time, I became such a huge fan. You know, I learned to respect through learning, through learning the music and being like, oh, this is actually fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. And that, I'm very glad that has happened because it changed the whole way I think about guitar playing. You know, now I have all these death metal riffs, riffs in my vocabulary, which I didn't just before this gig. Interesting. I want to talk about that a little bit about death metal riffs and uh, like, so what exactly did it add to your playing? It, like to you, what's different about it? When I started working on these songs, I had done mostly stuff with the people from Sabotage and Trans-Siberian Orchestra, which is very 80s metal. It's not that different than like, you know, Maiden or Judas Priest or the E minor, C major, D major progressions. My ear was kind of tuned to that. So a lot of the Morbid Angel shit to me sounded so out of tune that, that it hurt, you know, that, that it was like, man, like, is that really how the riff goes? You know, it's really, you know, like, is that not a mistake? A lot, there was a lot of that. Then I, I, I started understanding, oh, wait a second, it's a groove. He's not, really, he's not really laying the chords on the grid as you would in traditional metal. This is kind of a melody and the chords are part of it. It's this feel. Yeah, it's a feel, exactly. You know? Especially when Pete came into the band, because Tim was a lot more in the grid. Tim was a lot more in time. Mm -hmm. But Pete came and played all the original parts. A lot of the riffs just changed naturally. You know, because Pete is now accent accenting differently than the than Tim used to. So now I'm I'm correcting some of these riffs. And I'm like, oh, that's what it was supposed to be. My right hand changed completely when I started playing. I, I didn't even have and have a fast uh, a lot of stamina to stay. Like, what what's a riff that used to really hurt at the beginning? It was uh the intro for Donna the Angry. That kind of tremolo picking, I wasn't used to doing that. I played that fast when I was soloing and I'm shredding and all that. But just to hold that. Yeah, that kind of stuff, that was completely new to me. God, what a, what a classic though. My ear won't like suffer if I play a riff that has notes that are quote unquote out of key. In fact, mm -hmm. I don't even think about when I'm writing music. Now, I, I basically think of a drone, you know, so this song is in D. D what? I don't know. Right here is D leading, could be D minor right there, and then turn into D, you know, it's just in D. Uh, and, and I'm bringing that into power metal, you know, in my own writing and all that. Making it sicker. Exactly. So I can't say which song, we've texted about it, but so... Doth just recorded a Morbid Angel cover, and I worked really hard to really get it as authentic as I could. Um, and there's so many little things that Trey did on that old recording, like with the harmonic bends and like how they're different on either side. And every single time that they happen, when the riff repeats, they happen differently. Yes. And they're not exactly in key, but like if you play it any differently, it doesn't sound like the riff and it doesn't sound like the part. Like you have to do it like that. And I watched a bunch of live videos. I watched how you did it. I watched how Trey did it. I watched how Eric would do it. Like I, I kind of like triangulated and I came, I came to the conclusion that there was no room for me to have any interpretation with it because it's so specific. And what's interesting is what you said. If you approach it with a theory mindset, you're going to lose your mind. You can't do that. You have to approach it with 
how does this feel? Does it, and then if you watch some of Dre's old interviews, you hear what the fuck he's talking about, and then you listen to those riffs and you kind of connect when he's describing the feel of those riffs in his whatever interesting words he's using, and then you listen to what they sound like, there's a connection there, and uh, you can get inside of that feel. You have to disconnect your theory brain 100% and go with your feel brain. And I think that if any, anyone who hasn't done that would benefit a lot from it, I think. I am a music nerd, you know. I, <laughs> it's funny. My brain, like, sometimes I'll think of, like, theory concepts in my head when I'm walking, you know, just, just to be like, oh, how would that sound? And then can I make that sound in my head? You know, like, I really am. And I went to music college. I was very much that basically up to when I met David. I used to tell people, even my students, be like, you know, theory is something that you learn and then you forget. Because I read that on Schoenberg's book, you know, the uh, Arnold Schoenberg's Harmony book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, now that you know all of this, forget it. That's the end of the book. So that's something I always told people. But I didn't truly do that until I started working with Dave. That's when something that was theoretically out of key, but repeated enough times, started making sense to me. That opened up such a, such a, like a, a new world of guitar playing for me. Like, I, I could never be grateful enough to David Vincent for, for that, you know. Because when we started the band, we had a tour. And I was like, just give me the set list and I'll learn it, just like I do with every gig. And he's like, I don't think you're going to learn this shit right. And I'm like, are you fucking with me, dude? Of course I will. Just give me the songs and I'll do it. Well, how about you fly to Texas and I show it to you here? And I'm like, wow, okay. So I went out to his house and he like, he showed me like all these details that you're talking about. I only know because he showed them to me, you know, like, mm -hmm. like he, oh, oh, this part here, you know, it's not, -da -da -da, it's -da -da. you know, it's not three picks. It's just two, you know, like, man, that was, I mean, that was a boot camp. That was a real, real boot camp. And it completely changed the way I play. I mean, that was, that was awesome. And now when we do have to learn new morbid material, I'm a little more comfortable learning it on my own because I kind of know what they do, which is rather, rather unique. That's one band that I wish I got into as a kid. You know, sometimes I think that, man, Where the Slime Live came out in 94. You know, at that time, if I heard it, it'll be like, that's horrible. That's horrible. I want nothing to do with those vocals or, you know, <laughs> like I would have hated it if you showed me back then, but I wish I got into it. That song is so sick. It's amazing, dude. Yeah, it, it really is. One of the things too that is so enlightening about the way that stuff is written is that I think guitar players get locked into this riff goes four times, next riff four times, next riff four times. Riff comes back the same way, or we play it a little bit differently. Like this time we're playing it open instead of palm mutes or something, but basically the same four times. Maybe there's a little tag on the end, then next riff four times. And it, everything is just so like four times, four times, four times, the same, the same, the same. And with the Morbid Angel riffs, it's like the same, but different every single time. And not just like the tag at the end of the riff is expressively different. It's really good, I think, for guitar players to try and break out of the just, here's a riff four times, here's the next riff four times. And the Morbid Angel material is a really good way to learn that, I think. And what's interesting is despite all of that, 
a lot of the songs still have simple structures. Yep. Simple mm -hmm. uh, verse chorus structures. It's crazy. Straight up, you know, if it wasn't for being a musician, I wouldn't even know any of this. You know, I would be still stuck in my power metal and Halloween and Stradivarius stuff. Within this traditional song structure, I know that some people don't like it or some people just try to have whatever structure they want. And that's fine in some cases, but there's a reason for why verses and choruses exist. Exactly. I think a lot of the people that talk about how they like complex song structures or complex time signature, I think they don't really get <laughs> complex structures or time signatures. So, uh, so it's, it sounds complex to them, so they can't really express, you know, because at the end of the day, dude, even Dream Theater, I mean, images and words, think about that album. What's the first thing you think about? The chorus for Take the Time, the chorus for Under a Glass Moon, right? The chorus for Pull Me Under. All their songs have choruses. Like the songs, it's the songs. It was never about the, the time signatures. It was never about, about how complex the things are. Yeah, time signatures, you know, different time signatures are cool, which again, as a music nerd, I'm always in my head, oh, how would this melody sound in seven? How would this melody sounding nine? I do do that in my head, but but again, it has to have a purpose. It, it's not just throw this together so it's complex. And I always say that if it's complex to you, that means you're not at that level yet. It's the same with guitar players. When you see someone playing something really fast and they're struggling, you know, they're like making faces. Or oh, that mean that just means that you're not that fast yet. You know, you're just playing above your 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 uh, your your abilities. With with complex music, you know, this is why Dream Theater is so special because that music they were writing to them wasn't complex. To them, is just what they write. Same with Meshuggah. Like oh yeah, absolutely. Meshuggah is another perfect example. When you hear them talking about it, they're just writing riffs they think are sick. Exactly, yeah. It's hard for other people to play like them, not for them. No, exactly. It's, I think, really, that most of the time, not always, but most of the time when you hear overly complex music with no real structure to it, it's because they people don't know how to write with a structure. And it's almost like, a, this isn't the right word because it's not procrastination, but it's avoiding the real hard work mm -hmm. of writing something memorable that works as one unit and instead just kind of like vomiting out a series of ideas and then just leaving them as they are without doing the work of taking that, editing it into a song. Honestly, I think simple music is harder. Yes, it's, it's what I say is the difference between wanting to be perceived as a good musician and actually becoming a good musician. Yeah. Like a lot of people do things so others think that they're good musicians. This is most apparent when you see metal guys trying to learn jazz, but they don't listen to jazz. Dude, I see so much of that. It's like all you listen to is like death metal, but you're trying to learn jazz. Well, the first thing you need to do is go listen to Miles Davis. You know, if you if you don't think that's boring, like you if you don't if you can sit through it and not think that's boring, then we can start talking. You know, what you're trying to do is spice up your metal playing with jazz. That's not how how it's done. Why not spice it up with something that you legitimately like? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The the hardest part for metal people to get jazz is to go listen to it. So the podcast I did with uh, Zach Wild, we talked a lot about focusing on shit you love and putting your energy into that. And I got a comment 
where someone called me out saying that with Nail the Mix students, I tell them to still download the files and do your practice mixes, even if you don't like the artist we have, because you're going to get better. And I tell guitar players to practice things, um, you know, even if it's not their favorite thing. So they were saying that I was kind of being a little hypocritical by saying that you should focus on stuff you love. And I think that they're misunderstanding. When you're at the earlier stages, you should probably learn as much as you possibly can because you totally don't, you don't even totally know what your direction is going to be or who you are as a musician. But if you actually hate something, like if you actually don't like it at all, look, you should do the thing that's going to keep you coming back and keep you working. Because the most important thing is the hours spent and what you do with those hours. So if there's something that like you can't stand listening to it, you hate it. Why are you going to fuck with that? Because if you don't have the passion for it, you're not going to put in the kind of time and effort required to get great. Like, so for instance, I hate jazz, make no secret of it. I have zero interest in learning that shit. <laughs> One of the reasons I left Berkeley was because I don't listen to it. I never want to listen to it. I understand exactly what is so great about those musicians. I understand that like being able to improvise through any chord change like that, the way they do is it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I hate jazz though. And maybe, maybe someone else has figured out how to be immortal, but I haven't figured it out yet. And so I have a finite amount of time on this earth. Yeah. And so I'd rather focus that time on the things that will keep me working hard and enjoying it because you can't learn everything. And that's not to say there's not some concepts from jazz here and there that can be incorporated. But I find that a lot of people will try to learn this stuff because they think they're supposed to. Exactly, yeah. Which is bullshit, in my opinion. It absolutely is. But but you nailed right there. It's fo But it's focusing on what you're good at and what you like. That that tends to bring a lot more result. See, like a lot of, like as an example of that, like I think instinctively, a lot of metal people think they could write and sit, they could sit and write a pop song if they wanted. Good luck. No, they couldn't. You know, like like uh, I know I know people who have pop hits who are metal guys, but none of them hate their songs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's why I always say, yeah. Uh, I'm like, okay, how do you write a song that you don't like when you hate it enough? Oh, it's ready now. It fucking sucks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> of course. It's, like, <laughs> it's it, like you can't. You can't. You could if you're a metal guy and you think you could sit and write a Katy Perry song. I'll bet you a million dollars you cannot do it. You have to enjoy what you're doing. Totally. This is, I'm not trying to name drop. Like it's just, it's for listeners who want to hear these episodes that I'm calling out. Like it's relevant. Like, so when Devin Townsend was on, we talked about his collaboration with Chad Kroger. I didn't know that happened. That's awesome. I don't think anything came out. I think they realized that they were incompatible or something. They're buddies though. They tried. And what he said which is what I suspected was that that is the music that Chad Kroger loves to make and he's great at it. And he's not trying to do anything other than just write sick songs that he thinks are sick. He's passionate about that. That's what he does. That's his musical voice. It's not fake. It's not like he's into other stuff and then 
He writes these songs he hates. To make money, yeah. To make money. No, this is, the, this is what he does. It's the other people trying to copy him. They're trying to make money. Yeah, exactly. I know also those metal dudes you're talking about who also write pop songs, and they definitely don't hate what they do. No. But they also legitimately listen to pop. That's the thing. Exactly, exactly. That's the thing, man. It's, you know, I th sometimes I think that people, people in general, in many, in many facets of the music industry, they come up with problems where they're not. Oh, this guy is just doing that to make money. Well, he's surely doing it to make money, but I promise you he's enjoying it. Nobody is being forced to do anything they don't like in music. There's this idea that a lot of people have that there's a separation between enjoyment and income and at the highest levels, the further up you go, the less and less and less of a separation there is between those two things. Because again, no matter what level you're at, actually the higher up you go, the harder you work and the more brutal everything becomes. Like the schedules. More competitive too. You're dealing with better competition, better level competition too. Seriously, man, dude, like I'm sure you've heard about these DJs that would do like three shows in a day, just <laughs> not in the same place, in three different cities. It just like do the show, get on a plane, fly, do the next show, get on a plane, fly, doing that for like months and months and months and months. Sure, they're making a shit ton of money and they're flying on private jets, but it doesn't matter who you are. That type of schedule will wreck you. Yeah. You have to love it. Absolutely. It's grueling, man. So speaking of, you know, anyone who follows you online knows that you're very big on health and uh, fitness. And I mean, you look great. Thank you. And like, I feel like I remember seeing that you toured with Nita and you guys were posting workout footage, right? Am I imagining this? That was not me. I am friends with Nita, but no, that wasn't me. That might have been uh, Angel Vivaldi. Who were you touring with then? It was an I, I Am Orbit tour. I, I was posting pictures with our merch girl, Diana. Shout out to her because she, that, was, that was super cool. Like, So, okay, I was confusing. I was confusing things because Nita also posts workout footage. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the same sort of content. But dude, I mean, I used to have, uh, I, I probably talked about this on the podcast before too. I used to have this thing where, where I worked out a lot and ate right when I was home. And then on tour, I just didn't care, right? Yeah. We did talk about that, I think, on the last one. Yeah. Yeah. They, they used to be kind of my, the way I did it. And I, I, I used to treat it as like a bodybuilding competition. Then I went out with I Am Orbit. What, touring a bodybuilding competition? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so the last day before the tour is the competition and now I get to just, just relax and ah, eat whatever I okay. want. That's kind of how I, you know what I mean? Like on the last week before I, I was dieting down, just eating meat, you know, like, uh, like the past, like the week, the week or two Water before cutting. a tour and I would just, yeah. Just, just go the car carnivore, one hundred percent peak week. Yeah. So, but on this tour, I am morbid, dude. March of twenty twenty two, first day of the tour. I'm like, man, you know, I kind of want to walk around or something. You know, you know, when you're working out, but then you're not. Suddenly, you feel like doing something. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then this merch girl, Diana, who's a health freak. She's fucking amazing. She was actually doing merch for Belfagor, our support band, not for us. But she's like, hey, there's a gym not too far, and I'm going. You want to join me? I was like, how far is it? She's like, an hour walk. And I'm like, oh, an hour walk? Fuck it. Let's go. 
it sounds worse than it is. It, exactly, dude. So we and I was doing walks at home, so I was kind of used to walk, dude. And I went, and then the next day we did it again. Next day we did it again. So I'm like, all right. Because the, the two things that were stopping me was the price for a gym, because you have to pay like 15 euro every day or whatever, and the walks. But but then it became a thing on the tour, man. No matter where we were, we had to find a gym and we had to make it there and go and go work out. And then we were making that content. And I, I have to thank her for this because I haven't stopped since, you know, like I've been on tour since and I haven't really stopped uh, working out. Maybe I went a week or something because I was sore or even if I couldn't find a gym, but I'm, I'm keeping very consistent. And I just turned 40 and I think I'm looking my best ever in my life now. Yeah, you look great. I appreciate it, man. And it's, it's because of this, you know, now I don't stop working out on tour anymore. Like it, it became a thing. If I'm not with her, like, like I said, I owe, I, I, I owe it to this merch girl, but any other tour I'm in, I'll do that. And now I'm getting people to join me too. So we, we, even, we even have a hashtag, don't be a fat ass. And all these people <laughs> in different touring bands from all over the world are, are posting their workouts and putting the hashtag too. So it's cool, man, because it's, you know, it, it's once you work out, you know this, you know, once you start working out, you realize how good it is. And there's, you know, you just want to fit it everywhere into your life. And uh, it's- Dude, you know, I, I got to tell you, like when I injured myself, in September of 2021 and couldn't work out anymore. I remember that. That was terrible. I mean, it's the reason I started playing guitar because of, like you just said, when you're working out all the time and you can't, yeah, you feel like you have to do something. That's actually the reason I picked up guitar was because I needed something to do with all that energy. Exactly. But like, it was a very tough year not being able to really move. Ever since uh, I got a different diagnosis for my back, it's been improving. So for the past couple months, back to exercising. And the difference is night and day. It's amazing what it does for literally every aspect of your life. It's almost like you suddenly have superpowers, isn't it? Like you can make shit happen that's unrelated to the body. Yep. Did you finish 75 hard? Yes, I've done it once. Because I, I did it last year and I did it because of you. Because I saw you do awesome. it, and I'm like, man, this is cool. I, I mean, I do, I do listen to Ender Frizella, but I never thought about it until I saw you do it. So thanks for the inspiration there. You're welcome. I did it in 2020. I tried it again while I was injured, but it couldn't. I just couldn't do anything. I'm not 100% healed, but it, as soon as I'm like able to know that I can consistently work out at that level again, I'm doing it again. That's cool. It was a transformative thing to do. Are you, are you working out right now? Yeah. Like I'm not working out like I was before. Like I'm not doing like five hours a day of stuff. I'm doing a combination of the stuff that I'm doing for rehabbing and then little by little adding stuff. So lifting weights, it's nothing heavy, but lifting weights again, doing cardio again, again, nothing crazy, but doing it. Sick. Yeah. It's great. That's cool, man. As opposed to zero. Yeah. Literally zero. Dude, my, my 65-year-old mom started working out now, and she's loving it because she's losing weight, and she can, she can move. Like It would change her life, everybody's life. Yeah, and the thing is, and I can, I can say now that like having done insane workouts for a while and then zero, so coming from a place of being in the worst shape of my life, just like embarrassing, and then losing that weight, getting in shape, and then having to go to zero, and then now back to exercising again, but not being able to exercise the way I want to, but still anything, even 
the little the the little I can do, even the first week of rehabbing with the new diagnosis made a difference. So it's like it's not like people need to be doing seventy five hard. Anything is better than nothing. Exactly. Anything is better than nothing. For sure. Even a walk. I actually walking is one of the fucking best things to drop weight. Totally. Okay. So there's like the minimum recommendation, right? Of what is it like 30 minutes of cardio three times a week. That's like the minimum recommended and it could be walking. If you don't do that and you start doing that, even that alone will make a massive difference for you. Yeah. And I know that when you look online and you see people that are like in insane shape, and doing all kinds of challenges or whatever, it can be really intimidating. But seriously, just doing more than you're doing before will make a difference. Absolutely, anything changes. And then you start getting excited about it. Like, oh shit, I just dropped 10 pounds. Can I drop 20? Well, it starts like that. Exactly, all of it is built off of progression. So even you know, if you're doing zero minutes and then you do five minutes walking, that's five more minutes than before. And then that can easily become 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Before you know it, you're taking eight mile walks with a weighted vest. Exactly, man. I suggest it for everybody to some. Everybody. If you're listening and you want to lose weight, start with walking around the, around the block every other day. Yeah. So last thing I want to talk about, because we're running out of time, is with as busy as your schedule is, do you have a basic, kind of like with working out, how there's like, I'm sure you have like, if I only have 20 minutes, this is what I do. With guitar, do you have like a, a basic like thing that you do just if you have no other time? Like it's a travel day, but you feel like you have to practice, but you only have 30 minutes. You only have 20 minutes. What do you do? So I'll probably take the 24 combinations of uh, one, two, three, four from Steve Vai from that Guitar Word article. Like for mm -hmm. those that don't know what I'm talking about, Steve Vai did a... 1990 or whatever it was this one two three four all the 24 combinations that you can do for your 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 warm-ups you have one two three four but you also have four three two one four two three one four one three two and, I, and i'll just do 20 minutes of that at some uncomfortable tempo like 140 or something you know like uh, to keep the blood flowing and the fingers moving uncomfortable fast or uncomfortable slow i think between 140 and 180 is uncomfortable because it's not fast or slow you know what i mean it's like if you're doing 16th notes and you have to maintain it's not it's not blazing fast but it's not too slow if i don't have a metronome i'll just do around that time anything that can keep the fingers moving and the pick in sync with it you know, and I really like those, the the chromatic exercises. You know, for I'll, and I'll pick I'll pick random combinations. I'll like I'll play whatever's harder for me at that moment, like three, two, four, one, and then do that on every string. In time, you know, it's kind of a bitch to do it. And if you only have twenty minutes, that's a good workout. Yeah, you know, you can maintain or even get better with a small amounts of time spent if you spend it on the right things. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think, and that that kind of thing, those one, two, three, four exercises, I've been playing guitar for 30 years. I do some kind of that every day still. Normally I'll do it only with the left hand because, because I think that's what most guitar players need to work on because your right hand is always gonna be faster. 
So the left hand is where the definition is, is where the, and is where the actual speed is. Because if you're picking faster than your left hand, then you're gonna sound sloppy. Your top speed is really as fast as your left hand can go. So I do a lot of stuff, stuff like that. Interesting. I do that, and then also I'll divide it. So say I have 20 minutes, I'll do like 10 minutes of the kind of stuff you're talking about. Usually be like a scale, I'll pick a scale and a key and then do all kinds of permutations and then do 10 minutes of down picking. Yeah, I, I do the down picking thing too, but I like to kind of take my time with that. I start in the morning really slow. It's the first thing I do in the morning is down picking. Just, uh, I don't even mess with the left hand. And then I start doing, I might've seen that on the riff hard thing where, where you do every 16th you double yeah i'll do stuff like that you know so that's that's basically i think when it comes to guitars and working out what makes you better physically is is the basics it's always the basics you know you get better at the basics trying trying to learn some crazy arpeggio that that you you even struggling to remember won't make you play better you know no but if you're working on sweeps Making sure that the right hand motion gliding across the string smoothly, that's what will make you better. Exactly. All right, man. I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you very much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure as always, and I'm really glad we could do it. I know we like our schedules are insane. Yeah, thank you so much, man. And I want to thank, I want to send a special shout out to Logan Mader because I'm I'm at his studio right now. He allowed me to use it to do this podcast. That's all his gear. Logan's great. Yep, we got his his records back here because we are we're working here on our new project. Me, Tommy Vax, Mark Rizzo, Tim Young. He's not here, but Tim Young is our drummer, and Adam Deuce, the old bassist for Machine Head, and uh, we're recording here at Logan. But yeah, shout out to Logan for letting me do, use the studio. Absolutely. Logan's great. Good luck with that, man. And um, have a great one. Oh, yeah, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, man.